right, welcome back to another episode of the Cody Tucker Show. As always, I'm your host, Cody Tucker. So, got a lot to talk about today. Um, going to do a little bit of a switcheroo on one of the uh, segments. Because um, for some goddamn reason, I cannot uh, just keep a segment going more than a couple weeks. Um, so, yeah, I will be introducing a new one. So. <laughs> Um, but before we get into all that, um, actually, I think I'm introducing, I think I'm going to start two different ones. <laughs> so one, two, I'm getting rid of and then replacing with another two. So for fuck's sake, just bear with me. I mean, I'm still trying to figure all this bullshit out. Um, so first, uh, topic of the day, uh, the job market enters a new phase as the great resignation ends. So for people who don't know. Over the uh, course of the pandemic, there was like, I think 27% of people quit their jobs, which is, hey, welcome to the club. (laughs) I'm telling you this. Look, I know people, there's certain people out there on the internet who love being inspirational And trying to tell you to keep pushing, keep pushing, never stop, never quit, uh, blah, blah, blah. Let me tell you something. There is no better feeling on this earth than quitting. (laughs) Quitting is the greatest thing ever. I have quit every single job I've ever had. Except for like a few where I got fired. But to be between us girls... I had quit that job a long time ago. I was just still showing up. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, like I said, I've, there's no better feeling than working at a job that you realize one day, God, I do not fucking like this. And then kind of coasting for a little bit because you know, like, you don't give a shit. Like, fire me. I don't give a fuck. So you kind of get to like coast and bullshit for, you know, kind of see how long that lasts. Usually it's almost astounding how long you can make that last. How long you can just keep not caring at your job and still <laughs> and still get a paycheck. <laughs> like it is it's mind-boggling how little people actually give a shit about like what you're doing at your at your job. And so I would always, you know, come to the realization usually within about a month that I don't like this. This isn't for me. So then that sets in. Okay. I am going to quit this job at some point. Like, and I don't care. So until I actually do it, I'm going to do the least amount possible (laughs) and just see how long I can get away with it. And then eventually, you know, if somebody notices and is like, hey, um, you haven't done a goddamn thing (laughs) for the last two weeks, then I'll go, you know what? Fuck you. I quit and walk right out the door. And I'm telling you, even if it's not one of those, like you have a boss who sucks and he's just yelling in your face, which I've been there just walking out, like not saying a word to anyone, just walking right out and being like, I'll never come back here again. And I never have to. Like, it's, it's like, I mean, it is the most, like, you feel so much weight just gone when you quit things. Quitting is amazing. So, 
all these fucking inspirational people that are like, you know, putting videos of them, you know, running marathons saying like, I never quit. I never quit. Hey, fuck you. Quitting is awesome. I like, I mean, I, I love, I, if you're having a conversation with somebody and you realize you're bored of the conversation, quit the conversation, walk away. (laughs) Don't say a word to this person. Just realize in your head, wow, you are boring as shit. And then stand up and just walk away. I can't tell you how many times I've pulled the old uh, Irish exit and been at a restaurant with a group of friends and realized, like, I don't really want to be here with these people anymore. Nothing against them, really. I just, I'd kind of, I'd rather be at home watching, you know, the goddamn Sopranos. So I will get up, act like what I'm doing is I'm just going to go, you know, take a piss. And I will walk over to like the hostess, um, you know, desk, pay for my meal, and then just leave and not say a word. I quit the evening. <laughs> like I could have stuck it out and been polite, but instead, I, I no, I just I'm you know, I'm only gonna be here, you know, if I make it to sixty, I would be astounded now granted who knows what marvels of science are going to come around by you know now and then like now to then and maybe prolong me you know until until i'm 80 jesus who knows maybe um i mean i hope that happens like i would love to just kind of keep going until i decide to quit <laughs> like i you know i would love for it to just be like on my terms of like yeah, I think I'll live forever until I don't want to live forever. Like that that's my goal for my life. But what I'm saying is like you can like I'm not wasting time doing shit I don't want to do. I'm sorry. I've done enough shit that I don't want to do to realize like oh, I much prefer doing shit that I want to do. <laughs> like there are things I like to do and there are things I don't like to do. I'm trying to make the like-to-do pile way higher than the don't-like-to-do pile. Um, so, yeah, quit. Quit things. Quit everything. Quit fucking... Um, if somebody pisses you off, quit being around them. If you're in a relationship that sucks, quit the relationship. You don't like your kids, quit being their parent. <laughs> you know, go find another person, have kids with them, start over. Maybe those kids will be all right. Um, I mean, divorce is always the kid's fault anyways. So, you know, <laughs> that's you know, just one of those things. Divorce is quitting. Divorce, I mean, besides, aside from the bullshit, like, you know, payments that you have to make, I've never met somebody who's been divorced who said, who isn't like, oh, I wish I wouldn't have quit that marriage. <laughs> they're always happy they quit the marriage. They're just not happy that they're having to get, you know, that they're getting, you know, bent over by the fucking legal system, having to pay an insane amount of money to a person that they quit loving. Um, yeah, just quit stuff. Quit everything. Everything that you don't like doing, fucking quit. Um, anything that's hard, quit. Quit. <laughs> I mean, look, I played sports growing up. Quit every single one of them. It was too hard, and I wasn't that good at it. Now, could I have tried harder and maybe been somewhat successful in sports? <sighs> Probably not, let's be honest. I'm slow, unagile. My reflexes are absolute dog shit and i don't like getting hurt 
So, <laughs> you know, sports weren't my thing. I love watching sports. I'll, I'm not going to quit watching sports. I love watching sports. But playing sports fucking sucked. Practicing sucks. So I quit. If you, if somebody wants you, if you, you know, one day decide, I want to learn how to play the fucking piano. And then you're a couple weeks in, you're like, I don't think I really like the piano. Don't fucking keep making yourself play the piano. Fucking quit. If you, if it was meant for you to play the piano, then once you're playing, you would end up liking it and quitting isn't on your mind. Quit things. Quit your job. If you do not like your job, quit. There's another job out there. And if enough people quit their jobs, granted, things will get real bad for a little bit. (laughs) I mean, let's not, you know, let's not be completely uh, foolish here. Things will get real bad (laughs) before they get better but they will get better because people realize people who own these businesses would think huh i used to have eight thousand employees now i have six (laughs) i don't know why that happened they will start to examine why their business is gone and realize oh they hated working here why did they hate working here they weren't getting paid enough the bosses suck ass um there's this weird fucking idea in business that the customer is right the customer is wrong always almost actually almost always wrong sometimes maybe customers don't know what the fuck they're talking about they don't know as much as the people who work at that place so they are wrong (laughs) like people realize like no customers shouldn't be getting like treated like they're goddamn royalty People just because I go into a goddamn uh, Bed Bath and Beyond doesn't mean they should be you know sucking me off the entire you know entire weight. That's what the Beyond section is for. There's, I'm just saying, people need to just quit shit. I don't know really what I'm saying. If I'm just if I'm just being honest, I think I'm making a valid point. But then again. If I go and replay this, it's probably going to sound like the ravings of a goddamn lunatic. Which, you know, if the shoe fits, um, fuck it. So, anyways, there's that's there's my little rant for for the day. Holy shit! Probably shouldn't have started off so um, so intense because, oh goddamn, I feel like there is a glisten coming off of my goddamn face right now. I tell you what, I tell you what. Um, I, I really shouldn't be living in such a, in a place where it is hot all the fucking time, considering that I sweat. Like I, I sweat so much. It's fucking repulsive. And like, I'm in a climate controlled area right now, (laughs) you know, AC blasted and yeah, I'm just still like, I feel fucking hot. I don't know. Maybe I have goddamn leukemia or something. Uh oh. Alright, so let's move past all this bullshit and talk about, you know, talk about what's going on in the world. Oh, oh boy. Okay. Mummies from outer space? Question mark? Mexico's Congress gets a first hand look. Now, if you have not followed along with this story, apparently, in, somewhere in Peru, a they unearthed these alien mummies of real aliens wheeled these fuckers in on a bed to like a Mexican Congress to say, look, fuck there, there are fucking aliens. 
Well, interesting thing is, um, this isn't real. <laughs> there are so many people who are like, oh my God, this is it. This is our time. We knew we were right. We knew we were right. If this is what you're banking on to prove that aliens are real, you are so wrong. <laughs> I mean, look at this little son of a bitch. Let me, hold on. Let me try to zoom in on this sh uh, shit real quick. God damn. I will never figure out how to really work this. God damn it. Well, fuck it. Yeah, you can zoom in yourself, I suppose. Uh, anyways, look at this shit. I mean, this is... Okay, one, if this is what aliens look like, if this actually... Now, I know that in every goddamn movie, aliens, for the most part, look like this. But if this really is what they look like, I'm going to be so disappointed. Like, you know, and again, I don't know where I stand on the alien thing. Maybe they're real, maybe they're not. I don't know. But I'm telling you what, if in my head... I imagine they look like, in my head, I just imagine being giant fucking monsters. Like, I, um, what's that movie with fucking Haley Joel? AI, AI, artificial intelligence. Um, Steven Spielberg classic from what, like 2000, 2001, maybe. Um, which I think was originally directed by Stanley Kubrick. Then he fucking kicked the bucket and Spielberg took over, I think. Um, but anyways, in AI, the aliens are like these tall, super fucking slender, sleek, like almost spirits. Like they're not, like how they look, that's, that's more along the lines of what I imagine an alien looks like. This, <laughs> this is not, I mean, one, it's obviously not real because if it was real, if, if this was real, we would be the world as we know it, would be in utter chaos right now. Because it would be, I mean, visually, this is the proof that we've needed. An actual body. The problem is, is that this is, this is some shit a fucking 12-year-old made in art class. And they <laughs> laid it on a bed and covered it in some goddamn dirt, probably in the parking lot, on the way to the fucking Congress. Like, on the drive there, they were like, hey, shit. It looks a little too nice. Uh, and then they just start rubbing dirt on it and shit. Like, um, the same way, like, if you want to make a fake treasure map, you know, you just crumble up the paper, maybe, like, rub some dirt on it, and you're like, oh, look, it's an ancient fucking uh, scroll. This is this is that. So, sorry. Sorry to burst the bubble, uh, you know, but still ain't, still ain't found no aliens yet. All right, next, next, next. Oh, fuck. Uh, so, Jan Winner, God, I think I'm saying that right. Jan Winner removed from Rock and Roll Hall of Fame board after saying black and female musicians aren't articulate enough for his new book. You fucking prick. So, I mean, I could go on about this son of a bitch. So, Jan Winner, for those who don't know, started Rolling Stone magazine in, I think, 1967 in San Francisco. First issue, I believe, was John Lennon on the cover. Rolling Stone magazine has been a staple of pop culture literature for 50, yeah, like what, 50-something years? Well, maybe less, because Rolling Stone magazine started to lose its luster probably whenever they put that fucking Boston Bomber on the cover. <laughs> when they put old Jokar Zarniev on the cover of Rolling Stone magazine, I think 
that's kind of when the magazine went to shit. But there was like a big period throughout the 70s, 80s, 90s, even into the like kind of early 2000s where Rolling Stone magazine was like, I mean, that was the big, I mean, you, if you had a, co- I mean, the fucking songs written about the cover of the Rolling Stone and like Peter Travers, like one of the greatest movie critics of all time, writing for Rolling Stone. Like, so every movie you saw was like, Rolling Stones, Peter Travers says, blah, blah, blah. And, but all along, all the while, Jan Winter has been an absolute egotistical, narcissistic piece of shit. He's one of those like snobs, these like music snobs, who really doesn't know shit about music. He just luckily was in the right place at the right time and has a pretty good business mind. That is undeniable. His business acumen is un- is for sure undeniable. Um, so, I mean, old Jan. I mean, if, if you just go back. So he's also, I believe, one of the founders of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And that's been one of the... the, um, uh, the effects of Jan Winter being a dumb son of a bitch is he is now no longer part of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Thank God. So the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, in general, I mean, you could take, you can, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame can mean as much as you really want it to mean. Like, is it the end-all be-all of who is successful and who has made an impact in rock music? Fuck no. There, I mean, I've already done it a million times on here, but I've gone through the list of bands and artists who are not in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame versus the ones who are, and it's like, yeah, this things fucking stupid well one of the reasons why people shit on the rock and roll hall of fame so much is because of yon winner is because he has such a bias against certain bands and musicians that he doesn't want them celebrated in any way kiss being one of them kiss was like a big one black sabbath um uh i mean anything related to heavy metal really uh has been completely shunned by the rock and hall of fame now granted yeah black sabbath is in it but it took about 20 goddamn years for them to actually get 20 years of eligibility for them to actually even get fucking inducted, which is so astounding to me. But regardless, all of that is Jan Winter being a like just being this like, oh, I'm the number one authority of music now for him to be this guy who's allegedly this massive, you know, celebrator of rock and roll for him to think that black musicians <laughs> aren't good enough for his book even though they invented the goddamn genre <laughs> like hey sorry yawn elvis didn't really invent rock and roll now was he there like basically at the ground floor yes but was elvis really inventing rock and roll or did it already exist before elvis uh yeah it existed before before elvis and guess what who it was making rock and roll black dudes and black women so for him to think that like, and also Young Wonder, if you look at like the people he fucking sucks dick over, it's it's like James Taylor, fucking um, who else? It's always like anybody that's like a just kind of a pussy singer songwriter type. Which granted, I am a huge fan of that genre of music, but I'm not going to pretend like Jackson Brown and James Taylor are better than Black Sabbath and Iron Maiden. Fuck no. There is not a... No. 
it just it isn't it's not the way it is like yeah james taylor okay meh. jackson brown yeah i mean now i granted i'm a huge fan of cat stevens huge fan of i mean elton john i guess i mean kind of consider him in that genre huge fan of um carly simon because of carol king like there's a lot of people in that genre gordon lightfoot um there's a lot of people in that singer-songwriter genre that Jan Winter just loses his shit about that I'm also a fan of. Now, granted, Rolling Stone magazine has gone to complete shit, and I don't know how much of that is Jan Winter. I don't think he really has much to do with Rolling Stone magazine anymore. But if you look at it, like, it is... It's so bad now. <laughs> like, it's such a... The people who are writing for Rolling Stone magazine don't have a fucking clue what they're talking about. They are people who are just trying so hard to convince themselves that music now is just as good as it's ever been. They're like, like I was looking, oh, they do these those lists, like the 100 greatest, blah, blah, blah. I was looking at like the 100, they did a list a while back, the 100 greatest debut albums. And they had like Cardi B's debut album in like, I think the top 20. I mean, I th- it may be a little further back than that, but not much. It was over. They had Cardi B's debut album as being better than the Beatles' debut album. <laughs> now, granted, I mean, I'm not a huge fan of, like, the Beatles, you know, like... Basically, the Beatles pre-LSD, I'm not that big of a fan of. But to say that their debut album is worse than Cardi B's debut album fucking kiss my ass like it is and yeah young winner's just a fucking dipshit like you couldn't think you don't think there's a single black musician or female musician who is good enough to be part of your little fucking book and and i need to i mean the list of the people he's having in the book i mean yeah obviously like they're important people to rock music nobody's nobody's denying that bruce springsteen paul mccartney you know like people who he fucking idolizes there's no nobody's shitting on the fact that like or saying that like they don't deserve you know to be talked about oh yeah they're super important um but also yeah hendrix hendrix pretty important now granted i think he's talking about are he is he interviewing these people because that that would make a little bit of a difference because fucking hendrix is dead but yeah actually now that I think about it, most of the people that you'd want to interview who are either black or female in rock are dead. <laughs> and Carol King's not dead. Why aren't you? Yeah, interview fucking Carol King. She's one of the most important singer-songwriters of all time. I mean, I, yeah, I just don't get it. Now, I have got to take a massive shit right now. Um, <laughs> so, I'm going to go do that real quick, and then I'll be back to do... Um, a new segment. Um, Jesus Christ, I'm about to shit myself. So we'll talk about it whenever I get back. Holy. <laughs> Whew. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. Jesus Christ. Um, so what just happened in there was. I mean, I've never had something like that happen in my life. I I mean, it was like somebody just pulled the fucking floor out. <laughs> it's 
<laughs> it was like whenever you see um, on the news when they show like a sinkhole forming in the middle of a you know a street. And everybody's just minding their own business. Everything's going normal. And then just out of nowhere, there's an 80-foot fucking hole in the ground. And just utter devastation. Um, that's basically what just happened. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, I'd have a fucking cigarette after that one. Holy shit. Um, so, anyways. I mean, I don't mean to just carry on about my defecation but actually <laughs> now that I think about it this is a perfect segue to um <laughs> holy shit um to the new segment that I'm introducing so getting rid of the hot takes thing fuck that I I realized pretty quick that I really didn't have a whole lot <laughs> I had m- much less of a m- hmm, uh, I had much less hot take uh i didn't have a very strong list that's what i'll say i'll admit it i will admit my faults so what i'm gonna do instead is just talk about something that i uh thoroughly enjoy talking about which is movies and to kind of table the segment like uh this movie sucks but you should watch it because i think it's good that whole bullshit segment i'm just gonna do a thing that i incorporating two things i love doing the, you know, the artiste side of me loves film and movies. The mildly autistic side of me loves making lists. So, mash them all together and introducing, um, not just movie related actually. I mean, a lot of these are going to be movie related, but I might throw in a couple that aren't movie related. just depends. But it's going to be my Mount Rushmore. It's the thing that I like asking people anytime something comes up, whether it's a certain genre of movies, an actor, a director, a, 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 a genre of music, food. I mean, whatever it is, I like making a little a Mount Rushmore. Like, who's your Mount Rushmore of blank? Like, what is your Mount Rushmore of blank? <laughs> so, that being said, this is going to be the first one. I think this one's going to stick. If I had to... <laughs> If I had to put some money on it, I think this one might do pretty well. Now, granted, um, I've thought that about every segment that I've done. And so far, I think I've gone through about 12 of them. So maybe that'll just end up being a recurring, you know, thing of the old of the old podcast. Is I'm just constantly introducing and tabling segments. Well, fuck it. Whatever. This one, I think, is going to be good. Because I feel like I can go on and on this shit so this is gonna be my mount rushmore and to kick things off and why i said that what just happened back there is relatable to what is about to happen right now is the inaugural my mount rushmore segment is going to be disaster movies (laughs) to 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 you know segue from the disaster the horrific natural disaster that just occurred in there um like, I'm going to have to put a fucking tent over this building. So, anyway, fuck it. So, so this is, remember, this is Mount Rushmore. This is not a top four. So, this isn't in any necessarily specific order. Um, this is just, like, if I were to say, if I were to get to make a Mount Rushmore of this, these are the four things that are going up there. My four things. Now, granted, 
I'm probably going to name some, I'm probably going to put some things on here. <laughs> People are going to be like, what the fuck is wrong with you? Fair point. Um, a very valid, a very valid uh, argument. So if you disagree, first, second, leave a comment and, you know, say what you think. I'm curious too. Maybe I'm forgetting something. Maybe some people actually would agree with some of the horrible takes that I have when it comes to, um, well, anything. So, movie Mount Rushmore, first movie that goes on the uh, disaster movie. So, sorry, I keep saying movie Mount Rushmore. It's not movie Mount Rushmore. It's just my Mount Rushmore. Fuck me. So, my Mount Rushmore, the first entry to be chiseled into the disaster movie Mount Rushmore is a movie that traumatized the shit out of me as a child, Twister, starring Bill Paxton, Helen Hunt, Philip Seymour Hoffman, Carrie Elwes, maybe? I think that's how you say it. Elwes? Elwes? Carrie Elwes? Um, I think that's about it. The fact that Philip Seymour Hoffman is in this movie is something that every time I watch it, I know he's in the goddamn thing, but it it surprises me every time. I'm like, God damn, that's fucking Philip Seymour Hoffman. He was in fucking Twister. Um, but I'm also a massive Bill Paxton fan as a fellow Texan. Um, Bill Paxton's just one of those people that like is like a staple of the state, even though like universally not just like massively well known. I mean, Bill. I mean, I guess everybody knows who Bill Paxton is. I don't know what the fuck I'm talking about. Um, anyways, Twister gave me a legitimate fear of tornadoes for a long time. Growing up in an area that is relatively tornado prone, um. And constantly being told in school, like, constantly having tornado drills, which I don't know if tornado drills are common throughout the U.S. I don't know if it's just in certain areas of the U.S. where they do tornado drills. But we had tornado drills, I feel, way too often. <laughs> it was like, not, it was not, so there's like a point where like it's, okay, like now we know what to do. And then you just keep doing it to the point where it's like, Okay, is this really going to fucking happen to me? Because we're doing this all the time, so I feel like this is a real danger in my life. Turns out it isn't. The chances of being involved in a tornado are so fucking slim. But for some reason, (laughs) school, teachers, whatever, and Twister implanted into my brain that I was going to be sucked up into the sky one day and never seen from again. Or that my parents were going to be sucked up into the sky. Um, <laughs> that my house was going to be destroy- destroyed. Granted, did grow up in a mobile home, which, uh, oh yeah. <laughs> I mean, there is nothing that is more, that will fuck up a kid more than watching the movie Twister. Uh, so another so another thing that would happen a lot, which, it, it's a question of, parenting i would say not just parenting as in from my parents but just the adults that are around me knowing that i was afraid of tornadoes if i was ever in a situation where i was at a family member's house which granted all my family lived in mobile homes yeah <laughs> the real elite of uh <laughs> of, of my community um when there was like the signs of a storm coming and i would be fucking terrified out of my mind it was it always seemed like it was one of the adults ideas to just say 
hey, you want to watch a movie? It'll make you feel better. And it was always goddamn Twister. <laughs> and they were doing this just to fucking destroy me. And it worked very well. It actually still kind of does. Like, when storms are really bad here, there is still part of me that's like, should I be getting in my vehicle and, like, trying to leave town? Like, it it does. I don't know, like... Now, granted, I'm not, like, crying and shit about it anymore. But, you know, still. So, Twister, that's for sure getting chiseled up there on the Mount Rushmore disaster movies. Number two. Number two. Um, is a movie that, as terrifying as Twister was, even though it's not likely to happen, this is a movie, also a disaster movie, that kind of fucked with my head as a kid, that is even less likely to happen. And that is a movie called Dante's Peak, starring Pierce Brosnan and, uh, what's his name, Linda Hamilton? It is Linda Hamilton, isn't it? Yes, Linda Hamilton, Pierce Brosnan. Um, I believe 1997. Oh, I probably should have looked some of this shit up before I did this. 1997, I think. Um, yes, because then Volcano, I think, is 1998. And Volcano's the shittier one with Tommy Lee Jones and Anne Heche, I think. Fuck. I'm pretty sure that I'm right about this. Anyways, I didn't watch Volcano as a kid. I didn't see that until I was an adult. But I watched Dante's Peak so many times as a kid. And it... <laughs> of course, in my stupid fucking head, made me think that lava (laughs) was going to be a real problem for me growing up. (laughs) That I was going to have to be, like, scared of lava and magma. Um, This is another thing that I feel like we talked about in school way more than we should have. I feel like we talked about volcanoes and what lava and magma is way too much. I didn't learn anything of value in school, but goddamn, I sure we sure spent what I feel like was about six years talking about how volcanoes work, <laughs> and and I, I I mean unless I'm wrong, I think I'm like not even I think I'm like at least a thousand miles away from the nearest volcano, <laughs> if I had to guess. But for some reason, again, fucking school, public school. And Dante's Peak had me legitimately shook that I was going to be <laughs> in a situation where I'm surrounded by, you know, fiery, liquid hot magma and <laughs> we would have no way of escaping. Like, I, lava. So, for kids that grew up in like the late 90s, early 2000s, lava is our version of people that grew up in the 70s and quicksand. So, like, 70s kids, that's they had quicksand. Constantly, like, you ask any adult, any per, anybody that, like, grew up in the 70s, um, even maybe until, like, the early 80s, they have a real fear of quicksand. <laughs> and you ask any kid around my age, or any adult around my age, um, you ask any adult around my age, like, what their version of that is, it's lava. L- like, I was petrified that a volcano was going to erupt somewhere in the uh, flatness of East Texas, that there must have been some fucking (laughs) massive volcano I was unaware of that was going to send just millions of gallons of 
fucking, uh, you know, hellfire lava just running through our town. Uh, Yeah, I think the people who actually live right next to volcanoes don't really worry about volcanoes. (laughs) I mean, what volcano other than I think Mount St. Helens erupted in, I think, 1980. I believe that's right. Mount St. Helens in 1980. Other than that one. I've never heard of a volcano erupting in the U.S. Ever. I mean, I know, like, I think Hawaii maybe has it. So Hawaii is a volcano, I think. And then there was, like, the one that had all the flights grounded back in, like, 2010. I think it was in Greenland or Iceland. Iceland. There was a volcano, I think, in Iceland that kind of fucked some things up. But even then, it was not like Dante's Peak. Dante's Peak made lava seem like it had a mind of its own and could, like, sneak up on you. <laughs> okay, but anyways, Dante's Peak deserves to be on there. Uh, let me speed through these last two because I did not realize I was going to talk about fucking Dante's Peak and Twister that long. Next one, number three on the Mount Rushmore of disaster movies. A 2002 classic starring Jake Gyllenhaal, Dennis Quaid, Emily Rossum, and, well, that's about it. Dash Mihawk is also in it. Um the Day After Tomorrow, I believe directed by, oh shit, see I'm trying to do all this off the dome, which I think was a mistake, because, because shit, what is his name, he also directed Independence Day, Roland Emmerich, there we go, oh yes, it does feel good to like, get that to come out, so directed by Roland Emmerich, uh, Day After Tomorrow, a classic about a Ice Age caused by global warming. <laughs> um, where Dennis Quaid, he knows the secrets to the world. <laughs> to, to, he knows the secrets to the to the to Earth and its balance and how the balance is, uh, you know, tilting in one way, and no one will listen to him. And sure enough, he was right all along. And then eventually, they listen to him and realize, oh, we should have listened to you all along, but unfortunately, we didn't. And now. Um, you know, at least three quarters of the world is gone. <laughs> um, so unlike Twister and Dante Speak, this movie did not have me thinking. I mean, growing up in a place that's hot as shit 24-7, um, a brutal blizzard was never something I was like, I, I would be, I would love it if the day after tomorrow happened. God damn. I mean, with how hot I run just on a day, on a, you know, a normal basis, if I could get about 25 feet of snow, oh, I would be in fucking heaven. So, really, old Gyllenhaal and Quaid were just bitching about nothing. Um, I mean, people pay so much money to go to places with, like, sweet powder. Uh, fucking Aspen and Boulder and shit. And these motherfuckers are complaining because they have to sit in, like, one of the... I mean, granted, maybe I'm just kind of a, a weird fucking nerd, but... Getting snowed in to like a historic library and just sitting by a fire reading sounds like that's what I want retirement to be. If I ever, you know, if I reach the age where I can retire, that's what I want. That's what I want for the rest of my life. These motherfuckers are complaining like it's the end of the world. Now, granted, <laughs> it is the end of the world for all the other people who, um, I mean, to walk out. I mean, there's a scene in Day After Tomorrow with Jake Gyllenhaal. He's trying his damnedest, that cute little bastard, trying his damnedest 
to keep the people of that library in the library saying, don't go, don't go. My, my dad knows what he's talking about. He said global warming is going to have us freezing to death. <laughs> and nobody listens to him, so they all leave. Well, they all end up fucking dead. And, yeah, I mean, uh, I don't know. I've never understood. Like, people making just such stupid decisions in movies is something that I'll never really, um, I don't think I'll ever fully comprehend. But, so, yeah, Day After Tomorrow, number three. And then number four, I think this is the one that's going to get, um, <laughs> I think this is the one that's going to fuck people up a little bit and probably get me fucking um, just ridiculed in the uh, in the old comments. And it is the, I believe, 2009, uh, again, classic, starring the nephew of Francis Ford Coppola, Nicholas Coppola, a.k.a. Nicholas Cage. The film is knowing. <laughs> now, I know. That if you were to Google disaster movies, uh, if you were to Google what are the top 100 disaster movies, you'd have to scroll down real far before they start scraping the bottom of the barrel and you get to knowing. Um, <laughs> so it is probably weird that that I would put this on the Mount Rushmore. The, the reason I'm putting it on there is because this movie is so much better than what people want to give it credit for. This movie is amazing. Nicolas Cage is actually really fucking good in it, which this is in the kind of like uh, somewhat the era of National Treasure where Nicolas Cage was... Actually, yeah, it's like exactly in the era of National Treasure. Or the second one, at least. Where Nicolas Cage was like mellowing down a little bit, but also was doing Wicker Man. So, mm. um. But he's not, like, off-the-wall crazy in this movie. The movie itself, the movie is Nicolas Cage. And somehow Nicolas Cage is like... So you know a movie is fucking bananas when Nicolas Cage is the glue holding the movie together. <laughs> Normally it is quite the opposite. Um, I mean, let's just, you know, be fucking full frontal honesty here uh this movie's not as great as i'm wanting it is this movie's not as good as i'm wanting to make it out to seem this movie is a movie that i personally enjoy a lot i love anything biblical anything that has to do with the end of the world the apocalypse um like i'm a sucker for any kind of like bible mythology and like I mean, it's the, probably the reason why I love, like, possession movies and anything that involves, like, the Catholic Church in a movie. <laughs> Which, you know, spotlight. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, like, I'm I'm a sucker for any of that. So, like, and I'm also a sucker for, like, codes and trying to... I mean, this movie has everything that I like in a movie. It has suspense, um pretty decent i mean the special effects in this movie are amazing there's a plane crash scene in this movie that is i think might be one of the greatest uses of cgi ever in a movie like and i'm and and that ain't no bullshit now um like if you watch this movie and watch that plane crash scene it is like shockingly good i remember the first time i watched this movie i was like that doesn't belong in here <laughs> like that plane crash 
scene should have been literally like a marionette puppet of a plane with like flames drawn on it crashing into the grass. Like, like that scene had no business being in this movie, but it was, and it makes the movie so much more fucking awesome. Um, but I'm also a sucker for, like, yeah, for people trying to, like, unravel codes, and they have the code figured out, except for these little things where they're like, god damn, what does that mean, what does that mean? And then out of nowhere it hits, and they're like, fuck, that's what it means. And then it all comes together, and you get the little goosebumps. That fucking knowing does that. So... Anything is why I like the Da Vinci Code. Da Vinci Code is another movie that is absolute dog shit. But I fucking love it because I love conspiracies. I love codes. I love riddles, puzzles, all that kind of shit. Again, mildly autistic. Um, so, yeah. I mean, that would be the Mount Rushmore. Carve it up. Twister. Dante's Peak. Day After Tomorrow. Knowing. <laughs> all right. Time to move on. And wrap this some bitch up. Well, actually, two more seconds. All right, so the uh, time for the segment. Um, where that come from? This is one that is you know been doing pretty good, which I'm glad because I did not know whether people would find this kind of shit interesting or maybe I'm like the only one. Turns out I'm not. So fuck yeah, glad to see, uh, glad to know that. So um, this week, the where that come from? is all going to be centered around ancient Greek. And like how ancient Greek fables and legends um, and just the ancient Greek language has shifted how we speak today and how we still, from fucking things that happened over 2,000 years ago, are like embedded into 2023 language and culture. Um so there's a bunch of these. So I'm going to try not to just like go through every single one of them. Because otherwise it would take goddamn, it would take hours to go through all the like shit that comes from ancient Greece. Um, but some of the words that come from ancient Greece that we still use today, cemetery, dinosaur, galaxy, like the idea of the Milky Way galaxy comes from ancient Greek mythology of, um, was, I think it was Hercules, like, or it was Hera, I believe, nursing a baby, and then the baby, and then she looks, and it's not really the baby, so she goes, oh, fuck, and then her tit milk, you know, splashes everywhere, creates the Milky Way galaxy. I'm butchering that one, but I, that's one that I'm, like, kind of remembering. Um, but yeah, so cemetery, dinosaur, galaxy, there's a bunch of those kind of words that come from ancient Greek. Then there's, um, kind of like ancient greek stories that change that have like kind of played a role into like today's world um so this one is somewhat well known but maybe not known to everybody so during the uh this would be during one of the many greek wars um a fella by the name of Pheidippides, uh messenger Pheidippides, was running from a battlefield to athens to deliver a message that the persians had defeated the athenians so, recap, he, Persians are whooping the shit out of the Athenians, beat them, Pheidippides is like, ah, shit, gotta, gotta warn them. <laughs> I gotta warn the fucking, the people of Athens, the rulers of Athens, that things went south. So, Pheidippides hauls ass out of there, runs from that battlefield to Athens to warn them that, shit, we just lost. Well, the city that he ran from, so, actually, 
reverse. So he ends up running all this distance and dies. He like he runs this whole way and from and delivers the message and from sheer exhaustion kicks the bucket. The distance he ran was 26.1 miles. The city that he ran from was the city of Marathon. So that is why we still hold all across the U.S. and across the world, really, events where people run 26.1 miles, and it is called a marathon. Um, but again, that's one that I think a lot of people knew that, like, know that. <clears throat> so I get it if you're like, oh, fucking already knew it, which is a thing that has just flooded the comments. Like, everybody knows this. Everybody, well, no. Congratulations for you knowing it. Not everyone does. So anyway, so there's that. Then there's Greek words that, again, have like their words and like the kind of um, morphing of the words have changed um, the way we speak today. So in ancient Greece, the city-states, which is what they had, Athens, Troy, uh, Sparta, all these areas were known as city-states. So not really countries, not states, not cities. They were city-states, had their own government, but they're all still part of Greece, like the Hellenistic world. Um, they referred to these places as a polis. The polis was the city. Um, so when you see like Acropolis, P-O-L-I-S, the polis. Well, we still use that in today's world. So that is why the capital of Indiana is Indianapolis. And then in uh, Minnesota, there's Minneapolis. In Maryland, there's Annapolis. We still use that shit now. P-O-L-I-S. Polis to refer to a city. But also, the people who guard the city and protect the city are the police. The people who rule the city, create the laws for the city, the people who govern the city are the politicians. So politician, police, politics, all of that comes from the Greek word polis, which means city, which we still use in regards to like Indianapolis and Minneapolis. So that all comes from 2,000 years ago, more than 2,000 years ago in ancient Greece. Now, one that sounds fake, but isn't, <laughs> is that, so back in the day, again, like two millennia ago, the people of ancient Greece were very, um, very patriotic, <laughs> very nationalistic. Like what we do in Greece, we are civilized. Every, no one else is, no matter where they are around the world. No one else has the civilization, like the intellect, the commerce, the education, the, um, like nobody has, um, the values, the ethics, government like all these things that create a culture a civilization the people of ancient greece whether they were in like city states that hated each other like sparta and athens um even with that they still bonded over the fact that like ancient greece like the greeks are better than everybody else so yeah even though we might feud we're still on each other's side when it comes to all these other fucking uh pieces of shit who aren't greek that was like kind of the mindset of the ancient greek so, the ancient Greek also, being part of this, like, that Hellenistic society, believed that their language was far superior to everyone else's language. That it sounded better, it made more sense, 
they said that everybody who doesn't speak Greek, who lives on the outs- outside of, you know, what is ancient Greece, that all of those people, it sounds like they're saying when they talk, it sounds like they're just saying barbar over and over. Like, that's what they believe, like, the people, like, you know, parts of, like, Asia Minor and, like, the Gauls, the, you know, um, the Goths, the Visigoths, whatever. All these people of, you know, surrounding Europe and even parts of Asia and Africa who, it, they would just joke and say, like, oh, those are the, the people who say barbar, barbar. Like, they are the barbars. Well, that is where we get the word barbarian. So barbarian literally just meant you're not Greek. You don't sound, you don't speak Greek. Like you don't speak Greek. You don't sound Greek. You don't look Greek. It sounds like you're saying barbar. So we're going to call you a barbar and your whole fucking world is barbaric and you are a barbarian. So, yep. Hopefully that is interesting to fucking at least somebody besides me. I goddamn I hope so. Um, all right, so now moving on to, I believe everyone's favorite section of the day, half-ass history. One here. All right, so the first one today for half-ass history was a legendary writer and his friendship becoming enemyship with a legendary magician. So the writer is Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Probably do recognize the name Arthur Conan Doyle. Uh, was the writer of Sherlock Holmes, created the Sherlock Holmes character, wrote all the Sherlock Holmes books. Um, so yeah, Arthur Conan Doyle, legendary writer from the fucking jump in his lifetime, already legendary. Uh, Arthur Conan Doyle, besides creating Sherlock Holmes, was also one of the three judges in the very first bodybuilding competition, <laughs> which is. An odd thing, but true. He was also invited to referee uh, a fight between a boxing match between Jack Johnson and James Jeffries. One of the was arguably one of the most legendary fights of all time. Was going to be at one point refereed by Arthur Conan Doyle, the writer of Sherlock Holmes, but he said no. Said uh, don't think so. <laughs> Which is already that's Arthur Conan Doyle very eclectic life. What Arthur Conan Doyle is kind of more famous for, or what he kind of became more famous for later in life, when he kind of stopped giving a shit about Sherlock Holmes and was like, I'm done with this bullshit, he got heavily invested into the spiritualist movement. The spiritualist movement was, I mean, decently popular at the time. Like late 1800s to early 1900s, there were people like Aleister Crowley, Arthur Conan Doyle, um, lots of like these people who were kind of looking into like kind of pagan mythologies and mysticism, the occult, and Arthur Conan Doyle became obsessed with it. Arthur Conan Doyle also believed that fairies existed, and his belief in it came from this series of photos depicting like a young girl with actual fairies. Now it turns out it was just complete, uh, basically early, early beginning stages of Photoshop. But Arthur Conan Doyle, I bring this up because Arthur Conan Doyle is a very, Arthur Conan Doyle was a very gullible person. 
So, yeah, he believed in fairies because he saw one picture of a girl with a bunch of fairies, a couple fairies next to her. Now, granted, if I saw that (laughs) in, you know, 1901, I probably would be losing my mind, too. They didn't know Photoshop was, they didn't know people were doing trick photography. Like, they just saw this and were like, oh, my God, there are pictures of fairies. So, that one's kind of understandable, but... Arthur Conan Doyle basically believed anything that involved spiritualism and mysticism and anything like that. One thing that, so one subculture of the spiritualist movement that Arthur Conan Doyle became heavily involved in was the practice of seances. So Arthur Conan Doyle became completely fascinated by that by the practice of like holding a seance and being able to communicate with the spirits of the dead. He wholeheartedly believed that it was real. Around this time, he became friends with a magician by the name of Harry Houdini. Harry Houdini was much more of a skeptical person. As somebody who, you know, practiced magic, knew that basically... People who are magicians, like Harry Houdini, tend to be able to spot out phonies quicker than most people because their their art form is based on basically tricking people and de- deception, but like fun deception. So they're also really good at pointing out when another person is doing that. That's why a lot of magicians can easily like tell you how a trick is done, even if they didn't know how it was done beforehand. If they just watch someone do it, they could say, oh, that's how they did it. Because they know what to look for in the little signs, the sleight of hand, all these things that the normal person does not know. Harry, do- Harry Houdini, being one of the greatest ma- magicians of all time, he's initially very skeptical to the idea of a seance. But his mother had died, and Arthur Conan Doyle, being his friend, is like, well, we can communicate with your mother. Like, I can... Uh, my daughter is a highly skilled <laughs> uh, communicator of the dead and can host a seance. My, I'll be there. You'll be there. And you can con- communicate with your dead mother. So Harry Houdini says, all right, let's do it. They do the seance. Now, the seance is like working, you know, as far as Arthur Conan Doyle is concerned. And... Harry Houdini begins to start speaking to his mother through Arthur Conan Doyle's daughter. What Houdini found to be a little odd is that his mother was speaking to him. Like, so basically what would happen was Houdini would, you know, say something to Doyle's daughter. She would talk to the mom and then whatever uh, Arthur Conan Doyle's daughter wrote down is what Houdini's mom was saying. What Houdini found a little odd is that what she was writing down was all in perfect English. (laughs) Harry Houdini, being born in Budapest, Hungary, had a mother who did not speak English. So that already kind of raised a red flag of like, huh, uh, that's odd. And in the entire seance, his mother failed to mention that that day that they were doing the seance was her birthday. (laughs) So it just never came up. On her side of the conversation. So Harry Houdini basically was like, my friend who I trusted in, who said that he could, you know, give me this like peace of mind with my mother, lied to me and knew that this was all phony. 
Like, Arthur Conan Doyle knew that that this is bullshit. I mean, that's what Harry Houdini believed, that Do- Arthur Conan Doyle, like, knew what was going on and was just fucking tricking people. So that led Harry Houdini to become a very prominent figure in the anti-spiritualist movement, where Houdini made it, like, basically his like one of his lifelong passions to debunk people who were screwing people over. Like all the types of people who like do those cold readings with like, oh, oh I'm, 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 I'm hearing a name of M- 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 Michael M- Martin. And people are like, oh, my uh, neighbor's name is Martin. And they're like, he loves you. Holy shit. Like those people. Houdini was like, no, 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 no. You're not getting away with this. So that's what Houdini spent like a large portion of his life doing after this run-in with Arthur Conan Doyle. And they fucking hated each other for the rest of their lives. Fucking absolutely hated each other. Because um, Arthur Conan Doyle is like, that's, this is like what his life became. And Houdini immediately just starts shitting all over. <laughs> Arthur Conan Doyle is a fucking lunatic. Don't believe anything he says. He's lying to people. Houdini obviously ends up on the right side of history. Uh, and just another of a million reasons why Harry Houdini is one of the coolest human beings to ever live. So there's that. And the next one involves two fellows that I can almost guarantee you do not know the, you do, you will not recognize these names, but what happened to them created a domino effect that changed the world. So the two guys that I'm talking about are Echel Cole and Robert Walker. So, Echo Cole and Robert Walker were sanitation workers in Memphis, Tennessee. And on February 1st, 1968, they were working their routes, went to work, high chance of thunderstorms, like, fuck it, going to work anyways. They're on the back of their, they're in their the garbage truck, you know, going around the streets of Memphis. And sure enough, it just starts shitting outside. Like, it is full rain, massive thunderstorms. They are trying to get out of the rain. So they are like going around to like these different businesses on their route and asking like, hey, can we take shelter or come in? Like, so we're not having to stay on the rain. Now, remember, this is 1968 Memphis, Tennessee. Um, so, yeah, these businesses are not letting these two African-American men into their business. Um, Echo Cole and Robert Walker, of course, are African-American um, in a time in this country and in a specific place in this country where segregation was full steam ahead. So yeah, these people who are running these businesses are like, fuck this. You're not coming in here. Like you're not allowed in here. Go take shelter somewhere else. And so they basically run out of options. And so they end up just sitting in the back of their garbage truck, waiting for the storm to uh, go away. Now what happens is that the compactor on the truck malfunctions while they're in the back of it. And the compactor goes down and crushes them to death. So Echol Cole and Robert Walker both die that day. Just trying to not be in the rain. And no one would let them into their place. Just enough time to take shelter and get out of the rain. So they end up crushed to death in the back of their truck during work. Um... The widows of Echo Cole and Robert Walker are not given any insurance benefits. Again, they're in the South during the 60s, and they're African-American. So the government, 
of like the, the government of Tennessee in Memphis, Memphis specifically, Memphis city is supposed to be taking care of these, taking care of them. It's their insurance benefits for dying on the job. The Tennessee government's like, no, or the, sorry, the, the Memphis government's like, no, uh, tough shit. We'll give you $500 a piece for funeral expenses. That's it. No, nothing, nothing else. No, um, you know, like sti- you know, stipend or what, you know, whatever, like, um, no social security, nothing. Like we're not giving you anything. We'll give you 500 bucks to cover funeral expenses, which barely did that. This creates a huge uproar in the Memphis area, uh, amongst, I mean, obviously mostly African-American, but not just African-American people. Um, but especially like the working class people of Memphis creates a huge uproar where people are like, you know what? Fuck this. This is ridiculous. Like these people died on their jobs doing nothing wrong. They're working for the city and the city won't take care of their widows. Like we need to do something about this change. So the sanitation workers go on strike and a couple months. So like the strike goes on for like a couple months. And then in early April, Martin Luther King decides to go and pay a visit to the sanitation workers. Like he's been hearing about this. And of course, Martin Luther King was going around the South and speaking and marching, you know, alongside groups that were being, you know, treated like shit because they were black. So Martin Luther King goes to Memphis to say like, you know, I will, I'll march with you. I'll, you know, do what I can to help. So they're going to do two marches. He marches with them on the first march, and, you know, it's a pretty big deal. Like, Martin Luther King is a massively well-known figure at the time. Um, This is five years removed from the I Have a Dream speech. Martin Luther King is a guy who can, like, actually get things done by showing up to your city when something bad happens to, like, an African-American person, or in this case, two African-American people. So Martin Luther King is there, and then they're going to have a second march. And the second march is supposed to take place on April 5th, 1968. Well, the night before, so the, I'm sorry, the day before, April 4th, 1968, Martin Luther King, at his hotel, on the balcony, is shot and assassinated and ends up dying. And so that is why Martin Luther King was in Memphis, Tennessee, on the day that he was shot. That is something that I don't believe most people know. And had one of those businesses, had just one of those businesses said, yeah, come on. Like, it's raining. Come on in. Martin Luther King's not dead. Or, like, wouldn't have died. I mean, maybe he would have later on. I mean, the FBI was not a big fan. (laughs) J. Edgar Hoover was not a huge fan of Martin Luther King. Um, But James Earl Ray acted alone under no influence of any government program. Yeah, so... But I just find that very interesting. Like everybody knows Martin Luther King was assassinated, but I don't know how many people actually know like what led to that assassination. Like why was he in Memphis? So there you go. Last one we're gonna do of the day involves one of the most legendary fighters of all time. A what I would argue, alongside Mike Tyson, one of the most terrifying boxers to ever live. And it is a fellow named Sonny Liston. So Sonny Liston, I mean, I'm just going to basically go through a bunch of crazy Sonny Liston stories because it is 
staggering how crazy Sonny Liston's life was. Also, how super depressing it was. So this is not, I mean, this is not necessarily a pleasant story. Um, but hey, it's the story of Sonny Liston, and this is what it was. So Sonny Liston, heavyweight uh, boxing champion, just a a monster in the ring. And to some people, some people, a monster outside of the ring. Um, now, obviously, going into detail on Sonny Liston a little bit here on his life outside the ring, you'll kind of realize why people thought that. But you'll also kind of realize that that may have been a bit of a misconception about Sonny Liston as well. Um, so Sonny Liston had what I would say is one of the roughest lives I've ever heard about. So Sonny Liston, no one knows when he was born and no one knows when he died, (laughs) which already is wild to think about. So Sonny Liston was born the 24th of 25 kids, somewhere between the years 1928 and 1935. (laughs) I mean, I, it's more narrowed down to like the 28, 29, maybe even 30 region, um, like that time frame. But I mean, I've read so many different, you know, writings of people saying like, Oh no, he could have been born in like 1935. Like, like we don't know when Sonny Liston was born. Allegedly his, when his mother had him, they wrote his birth date on a tree, like carved it into a tree and he wanted to find out when it was. So he, you know, was going to go look at that tree. The tree had been knocked down and you know, that was it. So Sonny Liston had no idea when he was born, which meant that he could have been. (laughs) So this is one of the reasons why like things started, you know, kind of why Sonny Liston started getting this reputation as being a, you know, like a, just a massive like badass is because he's starting out boxing as a teenager, but he may very well have been like 21 years old <laughs> boxing, you know, 15 year olds. Um, I mean, you know, maybe not. I mean, he may have been actually 15 boxing, 15 year old and fighting 15 year olds, but he, <laughs> there's a good chance that he was like a grown man fighting teenagers. Who knows? Um, but Sonny Liston ha- grew up, super poor with a father who used to just beat the shit out of Sonny Liston. Like grew up without shoes. I mean, grew up like when you think of like legitimate poverty, Sonny Liston grew up in legitimate poverty. So he stopped going to school at a very young age to start working, to try to earn money. Um, because he was just a big dude and a pretty ferocious guy with a, you know, a reputation is like being pretty, uh, pretty handy with the fists. He started getting the attention of some people in organized crime and it eventually became an enforcer for the mob. And it, at one point, Sonny Liston's job was to go around and collect debt from people who owed money to the mafia. And if they didn't pay up, it was Sonny Liston's job to break their legs and their kneecaps and just beat them nearly to death. That was Sonny Liston's job for a while. Um, he ends up like, I mean, he ends up just like, you know, doing this for a while. Boxing is still the thing he's like 
That's his passion is boxing. And he, so he ends up boxing and has this just legendary career as a, as a fighter. I mean, fought, fought some of the best fighters of all time. I mean, including, you know, matches with Muhammad Ali that are still like legendary. Um, I mean, it's even like Muhammad Ali even said that like, this really just shows how crazy, like how afraid of, how afraid people were of Sonny Liston. So Muhammad Ali said that like, you know, doing all of his like talking of like, I'm going to do this to you. I'm going to do that to you, blah, blah, blah. I'm not scared of you. I'm not scared of anyone. Like that was Muhammad Ali's, you know, he had that persona of being like very like outwardly spoken and confident in himself and like what he was going to do to his opponents. Muhammad Ali said that the only time he was ever truly afraid of someone is when he was stepping into the ring with Sonny Liston. So that says a lot. And that's coming from a guy who also fought George Foreman when George Foreman may as well have been a machine. <laughs> like People were like, oh, that's an actual monster. Um, Muhammad Ali said, no, that was the time I was afraid, was fighting Sonny Liston. Now, it is hard also not to say that Sonny Liston, with his mafia ties, may or may not have thrown <laughs> the rematch fight that he had with Muhammad Ali. There's a, there's a lot of theories that... Sonny Liston took a dive on that fight to, you know, make some money through his, you know, mafia connections. And if you watch the fight, I mean, again, I'm no boxing expert, but yeah, you can, it looks, it sure looks like he threw the fight. (laughs) And who knows, maybe he didn't, but it looks like he did. And him doing that in a way kind of like ruined his career, like Losing that rematch against Muhammad Ali, it sent Muhammad Ali, obviously, into just the stratosphere, which he was already heading that way anyways, but then started knocking Sonny Liston down a peg. And this is at a time where the heavyweight division was just just stacked with people. So, like, you couldn't afford to have a highly publicized loss like that. Yet, Sonny Liston did. Sonny Liston, you know, lost to Muhammad Ali. He ends up like the last fight of his career pretty much is against Chuck Webner, who, I mean, Chuck Webner is the guy that Rocky is based on, um, you know, an Italian kind of street fella who ends up fighting Muhammad Ali, a.k.a. Apollo Creed. Um, but yeah, Sonny Liston's last fight is with Chuck Webner. And then Sonny Liston's life gets, so as bad as Sonny Liston's life was when it started, and then he has this rise in boxing, it went right back downhill. The fall was just as steep as the climb for uh, Sonny Liston. So Sonny Liston ends up going to Vegas and goes right back to what he knows how to do, and that's working for the mob. Now, obviously, the mob, very active in Las Vegas at this time. And Sonny Liston, his day job is doing public appearances at casinos. Which is the thing that actually a lot, quite a few retired athletes did. Like Mickey Mantle used to do that. Like, that's not a crazy thing for back then. But his other job was breaking legs and breaking kneecaps and beating people. So, like, you could owe money to the mob in Vegas and get brought into a room with heavyweight champion Sonny Liston, who was going to beat you within like an inch of your life. And that is, and then Sonny Liston was also allegedly selling cocaine and just, you know, doing a lot of stuff. And in this time with the mob, it was a little bit different than the first go. With this time, he started making 
a lot of enemies kind of in the mafia outside of the mafia Sonny Liston wasn't as like respected of a person at this time like he had had his fall from grace and now he's doing this stuff and so people yeah things just start going really bad for Sonny Liston and on at Christmas time his wife is leaving to go uh, on a little trip. When she comes back, she's like, where the fuck is my husband? I don't know where he is. Can't find him. Nobody's seen him. Well, they end up finding Sunday Liston. And when they find him, he has had a massive heroin overdose. The, and the thing about that is that Sonny Liston, for as like ferocious of a fighter as he was, was deathly afraid of needles. And there were no needles at the crime scene. But that is how he died, was an injection of heroin. That is oddly suspicious, that they did not find needles at the crime scene, or at the scene of his overdose, did not find any needles. This is a person who is, the only thing in the world he's really terrified of are needles. and But that's how he died. So it, of course, spreads all these rumors that um, it was a mafia hit, that he had... He had done something to finally push some of the mafia fellows over the edge, and they took him out. And so whenever they find him, you know, there's no telling. You know, they don't know, like, exactly when he died or whatever. So nobody knows when he was born. Nobody knows exactly the time of his death or his birth. Um, there was even a quote, which there's a quote about Sonny Liston that I think sums up Sonny Liston. And it's just sad as shit, but it's true. It's Sonny Liston died the day he was born. <laughs> and I mean, for all of like the glory Sonny Liston had, you know, in boxing, I mean, the fuck, if dude was just doomed from the start, it seems. So, boy, do I hate to go out on, <laughs> on such a bad note, but here it is. I mean, here we are. And well, okay, so one thing I'll leave that's like a nice little fact about Sonny Liston. So, Sonny Liston being just this ferocious guy had a reputation of being a prickly character. Well, that reputation is mostly just with adults because Sonny Liston found that in his life, people didn't really like him or care about him. They just saw him as an opportunity for themselves, whether it was the mafia saying, oh, look how big this guy is. Eh, let's use him as an enforcer. We don't really give a shit about him. Um, or him going into boxing, starts making quite a bit of money. Suddenly you have all those leeches coming back on Sonny Liston at the first time he's ever started to make any kind of money on his own. Well, Sonny Liston lived next to this couple who had like a couple young kids. And one of the things that like Sonny Liston loved to do is like hang out with their, you know, hang out with that family and with their kids and like let the kids like grab onto his biceps and he would hold them and then swing them around. And that was like, what most people say is the only time they ever saw Sonny Liston happy is with these kids. And it's because those kids did, weren't looking for something out of Sonny Liston. They just saw him as like, oh, that's our neighbor. He's a big guy. Like, this is fun. Let's do this. Like, he saw these kids as being people who don't have it in them to manipulate someone to get something out of them. And so, yeah, I think there's something like very nice about that. But God, it's still so sad. <laughs> I mean, his life is so bad, but hey, that's Sonny Liston. And if you ever want to find something crazy, go on YouTube and look up Sonny Liston Muhammad Ali Casino. Apparently, Muhammad Ali, when they were about when they were going to fight, 
Muhammad Ali's really trying to get under Sonny Liston's skin and starts showing up at Sonny Liston's house in the middle of the night in his bus with a megaphone, just screaming out at Sonny Liston, waking him up at, you know, two in the morning, three in the morning. Sonny Liston just starts getting real fed up with this, but doesn't say anything. Like, Sonny Liston is not a talker at all. Well, there's one time where Sonny Liston's at a casino at a table, and Muhammad Ali sees him, walks up to him, and is just going off on him in his face. Well, Sonny Liston, I think, is wearing a bathrobe. It looks like he's wearing a bathrobe. Reaches in, pulls out a handgun, and just starts shooting it at Muhammad Ali. Now, granted, the gun is holding blanks. But Muhammad Ali does not know this. <laughs> and trust me, Muhammad Ali knows Sonny Liston's reputation with the mafia. Everyone did. So Muhammad Ali is hauling ass out of that casino while Sonny Liston is just going, just shooting, <laughs> shooting at Muhammad Ali with a handgun that everybody thinks is real. Everyone in that casino thinks it's real, except Sonny Liston is like, yeah, it's fucking blanks. But yeah, so if you ever have a chance, just watch that video because it is amazing. Well, that'll do it for this episode. Hope you all enjoyed. Be sure to like and subscribe, of course, and go buy a t-shirt and all that stuff. Until next time, goodbye.